Christian violence is as old as the religion itself. Peter cut off a soldier's ear in an effort to keep Jesus from getting arrested. It started there. It continued with religious wars that took literally millions of lives between the Crusades and every splinter inquisition that cropped up around Christian doctrine. And it continues today in a nearly 50 year stretch of abortion clinic attacks, violent protests by white evangelical hate groups, and the advent of a presidential administration that spent four years fanning the flames of insurrection, speaking the language of the rabble and motivating them to commit acts of insurrection, not just for their maniacal leader, but in equal measure for the God whom they decided he represented. When you walk out your door looking at the things you do as part of everyday life being somehow threatening, it affects your perception of what threatening actually is. It's textbook paranoia, and I don't think that paranoia and live ammo go well together. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get unbound. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. But he also said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And he also said, put up again thy sword into its place for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. There's just a little bit of disparity in that messaging, isn't there? Just a little. And it's no surprise to me that so many Christians throughout history have misinterpreted some of the things that Jesus said or just latched on to some of the things that he said when it was situationally convenient. Right. Because that's us as people. We don't really care that much about what's right. We care more about what's convenient. And that's just the nature of people. I mean... If we cared about what was right, we would drive 65, not 75 on the Mm -hmm. highway, right? Right. So, I mean, that's just one example. Tonight's message is going to be on the heels of what we talked about last, where we talked about violence in Christian media, including the Bible and a bunch of other sources. That was the blueprint. And tonight we're going to be talking about the application, a history of Christian violence. And we're going all the way back. I mean, back to the Crusades Mm -hmm. and the Inquisitions. Yes, plural. There were splinter Inquisitions all over the place. We're going to be talking about those times. We're going to be talking about modern times. We're going to bring it all together and show you what the history is here and the types of things that culminate in actions like what we saw at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago. Yes, I'm still on that because it's a topic that thankfully more people are talking about now. Right. I think I said this last week, I was amazed at how much time it took, even though it was only a couple of days. It took a little bit of time, I think, for the powers that be to start pointing fingers where it belonged with us. But we're going to point a lot of fingers tonight, and we're going to show you where so much of this comes from. And hopefully by the time we're done, you're going to have a little bit more of an understanding of the actions of the people that tried to lay siege to our capital and also the actions of people that do other things like bomb abortion clinics or picket funerals for people who are LGBT or blow up gay nightclubs and all of that. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you'll have a little bit more of an understanding of where all of that comes from. For right now, 
Let's bypass any discussion of wars in the Old Testament and just say that there are scores of places anyone can find easily that prove this one simple point. God's way of solving every problem with humanity involves violence or threats of violence. A good concordance and the ability to look up words like war and kill really are all the exegetical skill that you need to figure out that that's true. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to even get into all the wars of the Old Testament. Those things are easy to search. And we've talked at length about the nature of Yahweh and the way that he resolves conflicts. And it almost always, almost, it always involves violence. Of course it does. So... Violence in the name of Christianity in particular has a long history. And let's just look at some of the sources here. One of the biggest ones is the just war theory, which is considered a doctrine. And don't we love that word around here? Mm. But it does have context outside religion. So let's not, pardon the term, jump the gun here. There is the religious tie-in with it as well. Right. But this is a doctrine of of making war that has its origins in Christianity. The just war theory is more of a tradition of military ethics that involves the opinions of people from every side of the war waging equation, including military leaders, theologians. Oh yeah, they really should have a say. And that's also a very loose term here. It equates more with the consigliere model used by the mafia. That's where the quote unquote theologians come into play here. Then you have the opinions of ethicists, again, with the air quotes, ethicists. They're more opportunist than ethicists, in my very not humble opinion here. They try to predict the most favorable outcome for their side with a surface nod to the impact on innocence. The purpose of just war doctrine is to, quote unquote, ensure that war is morally justifiable through a series of criteria all of which must be met for a war to be considered just. Now, you can read the word ensure there as determine. If your entire theory is based on opinion, you can't ensure anything beyond your chances of winning and making your point. And that's really what this does. It helps to form the basis of opinion of whether or not you should go to war. And there are two parts to this just war theory. There's the right to war and right conduct in war. The right to war assesses the morality of waging war or responding to a declaration of war. And right conduct in war assesses the morality of how war is waged. This comes from a Wikipedia entry on just war theory. And there is a link in the show notes. You're going to hear that phrase a lot tonight because Man, I did a lot of research on this one, and there's going to be a lot of resources that you can tap into. And I very much recommend taking a look at at least some of the links that you're going to see in the show notes. Now, now I, I will admit I've been lax in the past at getting the show notes out there at the same time that the episode airs, but I'm making a concerted effort this time because I feel like there's a lot here that needs to be nailed down in terms of proof. So the show notes are there right now. I'm going to make sure that I take care of this before the episode is published. And that way you can just go to every one of these links. I think that every last one of them has merit. And I think that some of the articles that I'm going to be quoting from tonight really should be read in their entirety. But I mean, I'm not here to read articles. I'm here to provide commentary. So that's what we are going to be doing is providing our commentary 
and letting you fill in the blanks with all of the source material. And there's some very good stuff. So we talked about what the right to go to war is and right conduct and war. Some think that the establishment of a morality-based system of reparations is also necessary. But in this case, like the other two, the concept of moral is very subjective and can be changed in a heartbeat to reflect the climate of the situation. To me, that's the problem with the whole thing. They want you to think that they're acting based on a specific set of morals, but I think you can more rightly moniker this as strategical or situational morality. Situational ethics is a legit area of psychoanalytical research, so it can and should apply in this instance, and it usually does without the moral foundation of honesty. Mm. See, that's the problem. Right. War has always had selfish intent on either one or both sides. And this also from the same Wikipedia entry, Christian theory of the just war begins with Augustine of Hippo and Thomas Aquinas. Just war theory with quote unquote some amendments. You can read that as with provisions built in to make it okay to wage war whenever we want and for whatever purpose we want because we're going to independently decide what's moral and what isn't on a case by case basis. Thomas Aquinas is the accredited originator of the theory, so it has theological provisos built right in. And here's just a thumbnail sketch of what it looks like. The just war theory was developed by St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the most influential theologians of the last thousand years. The theory set out conditions against which to judge whether or not a war should be waged and if it could be justified and how it should be waged. Everyone involved in developing this doctrine seems to have missed one salient point here, though. And that point is laid out very, very succinctly in Matthew 5, 38 through 40. And this is Jesus speaking. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Now, All of that notwithstanding, let's take a look at some of the moral justifications for war, according to Thomas Aquinas. And this is from another source from bbc.co.uk that I have the full link to as well. But here are Thomas Aquinas's quote-unquote conditions. The war must have a just cause, for example, against invasion or for self-defense and not to acquire wealth or power. The war must be declared and controlled by a proper authority, for example, the state or ruler. The war must be fought to promote good or avoid evil with the aim of restoring peace and justice after the war is over. The war must be a last resort when all peaceful solutions have been tried and failed, for example, negotiation. The war should be fought with proportionality, with just enough force to achieve victory and only against legitimate targets. In other words, civilians should be protected. And finally, the good which is achieved by the war must be greater than the evil which led to it. Now, let's take a look at how each of these points relate to the storming of the capital. First point, the war must have a just cause. Well, what was the just cause here? Well, if you ask the people that did it, the just cause was that there was a fraudulent election. Right. Well, there was no evidence that we had a fraudulent election. There was no proof that there was any wrongdoing. These cases went as far as the Supreme Court and got batted down. And some of them were not even heard because they were too absurd to waste court time on. So 
the war must have a just cause. So was there a just cause for these people to do what they did? Well, I don't think that anyone who's listened to this show regularly is going to sit there and say they did. Right. The war must be declared and controlled by a proper authority, for example, the state or ruler. Well, regardless of what Donald Trump wanted to think of himself as a quote-unquote ruler, his word and mandate was not enough. Right. You see, here in the United States of America, we have a couple of things that we like to fall back on when it comes to making decisions like this, one of them being the Constitution of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And that document grants Congress the sole power to declare war. Congress has only declared war on 11 occasions. That, that surprised me. We've allied in other wars, but 11 occasions we have declared war, including its first declaration of war with Great Britain in 1812. Congress approved its last formal declaration of war during World War II. I found that also very interesting because mm -hmm. we've been in a few since. Yeah. The next point is that the war must be fought to promote good or avoid evil with the aim of restoring peace and justice after the war is over. So how does that factor in? Now, you see, if you ask the people who were involved, the good was supposed to come from their leader being reinstated after he lost an election. Right. The evil, of course, is the evil liberals. Mm -hmm. The word that they love to use to describe anyone who has a difference of opinion from them. Right. There were plenty of conservatives that didn't vote for this asshole the second time either. Mm -hmm. And I told you about the sign that I saw when, right. uh, when I was driving around that said, I'm a Republican, not a fool, Biden 2020. Well, guess what? There were plenty of people who were on, quote unquote, your side and not, quote unquote, liberals who did the right thing here. The promotion of good was supposedly that the quote-unquote rightful winner of this election would be able to resume his post. But the problem there again is that there were no errors and no fraud in the electoral process. So you can throw that one out in this context as well. The war must be a last resort when all peaceful solutions have been tried and failed. Well, they'll tell you that that was a thing too right. in this instance, because now we're at the point where we are tallying the electoral votes and we're going to quote unquote give Joe Biden this presidency. So at the 11th hour, they decided to do this because all peaceful solutions have been tried and failed, or at least that is what their miscreant Messiah wanted them to believe. Hmm. The war should be fought with proportionality, with just enough force to achieve victory only against legitimate targets. So who were the legitimate targets in this particular instance? Well, it was the evil liberals, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And how much force would it take to overcome an entire country who voted for the other guy at a rate of 7 million more votes? Right. So... I'm not sure what they intended to accomplish with this one action. And I also found it interesting just how easy it was to dispatch them, to get them out of there. This was all over and done in a matter of a couple of hours. Yeah. They weren't the most valiant of warriors, were they? Well, no. Not by a long shot. I mean, I'm not going to say it wasn't planned, but they didn't have a lot of foresight in their planning. Like, what if you didn't have as much backup as you thought? Because they thought that the military of the United States would be on their side. Of course they did. 
because in their deluded minds, they're thinking that their commander in chief can simply tell them to do something and it's going to happen. No. Uh, that is not the way that it works no, either. It you see, there are all kinds of checks and balances. Mm-hmm. I learned about checks and balances in government in like fifth grade. Right. Okay. They don't have government classes anymore. Right. Well, that's problem number one. Yeah, but again, just like we said last week, what were the ages right. of the people that were they're involved in like this? Like our age. And we did. Yeah. Okay, we yeah. learned this stuff. We understand this, or should understand this stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, when your miscreant Messiah mm-hmm. says different, then all of a sudden, anything that you might have learned in school, anything that was practical, goes right out the window. So they weren't even thinking about the fact that he couldn't just snap his fingers and make shit happen. Right. And that was, I believe, what they were expecting at pretty much every point of this. And now you've got the ones that are being arrested and have not been pardoned. Mm -hmm. Well, mostly because there hasn't been a trial for most of them. So there was nothing really there to pardon. Charges have been made in a lot of these cases. We're going to get to those numbers in a few minutes. But the simple fact of the matter is there wasn't a whole hell of a lot to pardon here. No. So now that we've gone through that point by point and kind of done the point counterpoint thing with that, let's also look at this situation from the standpoint of logic since we really shouldn't be looking at the Bible for advice on anything. Turning the other cheek works if you don't mind losing your country, your life, your way of life. When attacked, it is appropriate to defend. I'm not pro-war. I don't think that war should be used as a first solution for anything. But I also don't think that we should sit on our asses and kiss the cheek of the aggressor either. Right. The problem is that initiatives like the Crusades and the Inquisitions, those were not defensive, although the church tried to claim that they were. They were trying to stop the spread of things like Islam and witchcraft with the ultimate purpose being that the truth of Christianity would not be abated by apostate teachings and practices. So the defensive angle here comes from the notion of defending their religion from vanishing into obscurity. It's all an excuse. Right. And that's all it is. It's nothing but wordplay. And that really is it. And that's what I was talking about before. You see, you can argue the morals of it until you're blue in the face. But the bottom line is they're deciding what's moral as they go. Right. And that's the problem. And that opens up the door for you to basically do whatever the fuck you want when you want. Right. Speaking of the Crusades, I came up with a really, really good article from foreignpolicy.com. And I just want to read a little quote here. From an article entitled, If Islam is a religion of violence, so is Christianity. Oh, hell to the motherfucking yes. (laughs) The Crusades are still a sore subject in the Muslim world, but it's easy to forget the havoc that they wreaked on the Jews of Europe. See, a lot of people don't think about that. They don't think about this part of it. But it's true. Back to the quote. Time after time, as Crusaders slogged southeast on their umpteenth trip to the Holy Land, they slaughtered the Jews in their path. They herded them into synagogues and set the buildings on fire. The Crusaders killed so many Jews in the name of their Christian faith that it was the most stunning demographic blow to European Jewry until the Holocaust, which, just a friendly reminder, happened in Christian, civilized Europe only 70-some years ago. 
Anyone want to show me any Muslim initiative that did this much damage? I'm not going to downplay events like 9-11 and the never-ending conflict in the Middle East. I'm not going to excuse strapping bombs to children. And I'm not going to write off brutal executions for crimes that range from being homosexual to being female to just being in the wrong place at the wrong time like several of our journalists in just the past decade have found themselves. Um, I'm not going to downplay or dismiss that at all. But when I think of bloodshed in the name of religion, my mind, my mind goes to things like the Crusades. Yep. And my little stint in Wicca had me thinking about the Burning Times, Mm -hmm. which was also a quote unquote Christian initiative. Yes. The Salem Witch Trials that we just talked about a little while ago. The KKK. Oh, yeah. The Holocaust. All of these things had their roots in perceived righteous Christian objectives. And let's not forget the Battle of Armageddon and the bloodbath that the Bible predicts with that in Revelation. You see, they want us to think in terms of bloodshed and violence. And just a quick little science lesson for you here. This is more of that awesome biblical science. You know the part in that story about the blood being up to the bridles of the horses? Yeah. Well, even... At today's numbers, even when you take today's population numbers into account, and they were nowhere near back then, you would literally have to drain every human body dry of blood to be able to come close to achieving this, and you still couldn't. Right. In the area that this battle is supposed to take place in, you couldn't possibly shed enough blood if you killed every person on the face of the earth to achieve what it says in the book. Well, you can say that it was more poetic than it was literal. Well, okay, then what the fuck do you take as literal and what do you read as poetic in the Bible? Right. They never get around, the writers of these crazy stories never get around to telling you whether or not they're being literal or whether they're being figurative. And that's problematic. So I can only go by what the book says. Mm -hmm. And that's what it says. So just another little lesson on biblical science that goes way off topic. Let's get back on topic. Let's take a look at what goes on today. Maybe Christians today aren't as outwardly demonstrative of their hate in some of these ways, but their legacy is still one of bloodshed, pure and simple. Well, Spider, we're talking predominantly about the Catholics here, aren't we? And this is supposed to be a podcast about evangelicals, isn't it? Okay, well, Let's look at it from this standpoint. Catholicism gave us Martin Luther, who in turn gave us the Protestant Reformation, which opened the door for evangelical doctrine and practice to become a thing. So even if the Catholic Church is the Assemblies of God's great-grandparent, it's still in the family. The DNA is there. And as I understand it, the Protestant Reformation wasn't completely bloodless in itself, because later on you had people killing other people for being Catholic. And, oh, yeah. You know, like the rulers of England, I believe. Right. Would and the whole thing them. with Northern Ireland. Right. You know, that was, that's been, there are still splinter factions out there that are, that are waging this idiotic war between the Catholics and the Protestants in Northern Ireland. So, yeah, that was definitely an outcropping yeah. of the whole Protestant Reformation, there were wars and skirmishes that were fought because of that too. Right. And we need to also keep in mind that the messaging in Christianity has only changed in its delivery, not in its substance and not in its implications. 
Christians had an affection for aggression and bloodshed way back when. And while we might see a very muted version of it today in comparison, and it is, as horrible as things are right now, it's still a muted version of what they used to do. Mm -hmm. But guess what? It's still there. Back then, it was about defending the faith by the sword, or so they said. I personally think it was a bunch of assholes with a bloodlust, and not much more than that. Today, it takes the form of gun rights, protests that teeter on the very precipice of peaceful and often cross that line with brazen disregard for anything pure, decent, holy, or of good report, and often with enigmatic impunity. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, too. And it's also built on the aggressive insistence that an entire country bend its laws to better match their sense of morals. Or, as I like to put it, so the adult toddlers in our midst always get their way. Mm. Scream until daddy stops the car at Dairy Queen. It's that level. It's on that level. The predominantly white evangelical mob who, and I'm using lowercase w for white here. There is such a thing as white evangelical that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But look at this as lowercase w right now. The predominantly white evangelical mob who stormed our nation's capital at the behest of their ousted failed demagogue had no outlined agenda. They had no plan that even remotely coincided with the very Christian-born just war doctrine. They wanted their way, and that was it. They marched into their stunted battle, touting the supremacy of their God, many under the delusion that they were carrying out the biblical end times plan. Mm -hmm. That's another thing. This end times obsession permeates everything. And there were people in that mob that literally thought that they were bringing about the end times that they've been waiting their whole lives to see. I've scoured a lot of different sites and tried to find specific examples of this, like what's going on in their heads. And I did find a couple. I don't have time to go through all of it. And again, that's why I've got so many sources this week. And there are a couple that go into this in a little bit more depth. There are reasons behind these delusions. And some of them are perpetuated from the pulpit. Some of them come from this penchant that these people have for looking at everything going on in the world around them and squeezing them into biblical parallels. (laughs) And this is just another example of that. The people who sieged the Capitol a couple of weeks ago listened to a quote-unquote leader who told them that their cause was righteous. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, people are going to listen to someone who builds them up, makes them feel important. We learned this from Dale Carnegie. Oh, yeah. In How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm And if there's one thing that Donald Trump was good at, he knew who his target demo was. He knew precisely who he should be talking to. And he really groomed his message to appeal to these people. These are people who, by and large, don't have a whole lot of education. They don't have the greatest of stations in life. And this was an opportunity for some of them to achieve a little bit of personal glory and do something that they deemed important. Mm -hmm. And all they needed was a little bit of encouragement to do what they did. And the next thing you know, we've got people smashing windows at the Capitol. When this person that they've put all this stock in is also the leader of the free world, you get in that instance a 
deadly cocktail of mob rule and might makes right ideology. At that point, the thinking gets hopelessly skewed and the initiative becomes another crusade. Let's keep this person in power so that our rights and religion don't disappear. Even if that means cutting a path that shreds the very fiber of our democracy to ribbons, we must do this. In their view of things, this was a defense move, just like in the Just War Doctrine. Right. It wasn't an act of aggression as far as they're concerned. It was done with righteous and God-mandated intent. That was what was going on in their heads. Oh, yeah. White evangelicals, and this time we're talking about capital W, and I'll explain a little bit more what this means in a couple of minutes. But white evangelicals are a subsection of evangelicals. Usually, I'd say 99.9% of the time Caucasian, which is why they're called white evangelicals. And they are on the far right, very radical side of things. White evangelicals hold to the ideals they cling to because they have become addicted to the illusion of power that it gives them. The Crusades were a millennium ago now. Mosques, however, are still a thing, and they're a thing right here in this country. Christian initiatives to defend their faith by eradicating all other faiths and opposing ideologies has proved very effective over the years, hasn't it? And just so we're clear, if your friendly neighborhood church of Pentecostal anointing of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost with fire and signs following is afforded a place here, the local mosque must be too. Right. Because... Whatever you think about religion, and you already know that my opinion of it across the board is very low, Mm -hmm. weaponizing one against another, silencing one, and handing a megaphone to the other is the perfect way to ensure that society remains in a perpetual state of unrest. Right. As much as I hate the idea of religion in general, I feel like it's important that we leave them alone unless they are doing real harm. Right. And, I mean... Yeah, that's why I do what I do. I don't leave these people alone because they're doing real harm. Right. But I also don't think that taking away their right to do what they want to do the way they want to do it is at all smart, especially not with this particular religious group. It's not a smart thing to even try to do. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing here. You see, it's not going to happen by legislating them out of existence. It's going to happen by bombarding society in general and the people around them with truth so that they quit adding to their numbers. As far as I'm concerned, that's the real point. Get people to see them for what they are and get people to stop believing the shit that they throw at them. That, I think, is going to be the real solution here. Not trying to silence them, not trying to shut them down, because all that's going to do is breed more unrest. No, you let it die of natural causes. Now we're going to switch gears and talk a little bit about guns and the evangelical obsession with gun ownership and the right to bear arms. And I'm going to one of my buds here, Hemant Mehta who, if you've never heard of him, he's also known as the Friendly Atheist, which will be a lot easier to search if you don't know how to spell his name. But I would definitely take a look at his YouTube channel, and he's got a lot of other resources out there, too. I highly, highly recommend getting to know Hemant just a little bit more. In this particular instance, I don't agree with everything that he says. I think that I'm a little bit closer to the situation than he's ever been in certain of these points, but I think that the spirit of his message is sound. I just want to take a little bit of time here to look at another article that I found of his on patheos.com, 
It's called Why Do Evangelicals Love Guns So Much When Jesus Preached a Message of Peace? Mm. Well, like we've demonstrated, Jesus didn't always preach a message of peace. There were instances where you could say that he was inciting shit. Yeah. And there were instances when you saw his temper come out. And then there's the whole matter of the book of Revelation where he's not coming back as the humble king to spread love and daisies all over the place. No. He's coming back with bloodshed in mind. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, I think that he and I kind of disagree with the whole Jesus being purely pacifist and all of that. He wasn't. He wasn't. You got to read the fine print and you got to dig through those verses and you got to listen to some of the words. There was seditiousness in some of the things that Jesus had to say. But that notwithstanding, atheists are allowed to disagree too, you know? And this was one point where I just had to offer that little bit of an aside because I love this article. I just don't agree with every word of it. Well, yeah. So Hemant Mehta sees a clear divide between evangelical and Christian. And I do agree with the notion of those two things being mutually exclusive. Mm. Christians of various descriptions have decried violence over the centuries I don't want to say in equal measure, but certainly in a loud voice that compares to the ones that have called for violence. Right. He cites the Quakers and Mennonites as examples, and I'll add the Amish and Shakers into the mix. There are Christian sects out there Mm -hmm. that are purely pacifistic and would never ever take up arms. These groups have historically refused to take up arms in war, even to the point of defying draft orders and risk their personal freedom for their personal beliefs. Right. And there is a degree of honor to that. I would love it if they had a slightly better reason for it. If there was a slightly more humanitarian reason for it and not, well, God doesn't want me to. Well, how about I don't want to, how about I just don't want to go off and kill people. But that's neither here nor there. I'm not going to judge these people. They made the right decision regardless of what their reasoning was. And with all due respect, that's the way that they interpreted their faith. So I'm going to step off of that platform, whatever keeps people from being shot. that, That works for me. Evangelicals, on the other hand, choose to ally with their great grandparents in the faith, the Catholic Church in particular, in the sentiment that taking up arms is always a defensive move while displaying actions that communicate the exact opposite. Mm. And here's a little quote from the article, fervent evangelical Americans just haven't gotten the message. That's the message of pacifism that, um, that he believes that Jesus was kind of in line with all the time. Back to the quote, no matter how often they study their Bibles, no matter how often they go to church, no matter how often Jesus appears to them in their dreams, they continue to cherish their steely killing machines and actively fight for their celebration and proliferation through America, which they constantly insist is a Christian nation. No, it is not. No, it has never been. Mm -hmm. No, it never will be. Just because these people are the majority religion in this country does not make us a Christian nation. We are a democracy, not a theocracy that didn't change on January 6th. It's not going to change anytime soon. We are not a Christian nation. You can be what you want, who you want, Believe what you want, love who you want, do what you want, as long as it doesn't bring harm to others. That's the way that we do things here. And yeah, there are laws that kind of put a finer point on those things. And 
in some cases we need those laws to understand where that balance is. But for the most part, that's it in a nutshell. So no, we are absolutely not a Christian nation. But continuing his point, the love of both Jesus and guns is all too real. For example, according to a 2017 Pew survey, white evangelicals, and that is the capital W, white evangelicals, are more likely than members of other faith groups or the average citizen to own a gun. A majority of white evangelicals who own a handgun carry it with them. Mm. White evangelicals are more likely than average Americans to believe that most places should allow citizens to carry guns. Mm. It is an assertion of their perceived rights or yet another sign of the kind of fear that their religion attempts to and succeeds in instilling in them. If God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, what do you need a fucking gun for? Mm. This is their rhetoric. They want to take away your rights. They want to take away your religious freedom. They want to take away your guns. They want to remove your defenses. Don't let them. That's the whole messaging behind most of this. But let's make one thing clear. The Constitution does not, does not, does not guarantee every private citizen the right to keep and bear arms. Here is the language of the Second Amendment as it is written in the Constitution of the United States of America, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It says nothing there about individual liberty. It says nothing there about anyone and everyone who wants to carrying a gun. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That means that if you are part of a well-regulated militia, you have the right to keep and bear arms. Not because you don't feel safe walking down the street when everybody else is walking down the street and they're perfectly okay. The language of the amendment does not in any way, shape, or form afford private citizens the right to carry a gun just because they feel like it. It does not guarantee personal empowerment. It exists to ensure the safety of the populace under the protection of an organized militia. With a strong national military firmly in place, the language of this amendment has lost a large degree of its relevance over time. It is no longer up to states or colonies to organize independent defense structures to ensure their safety. Today, the role of the state militia is more than adequately fulfilled with the presence of National Guard installments staffed by trained military personnel with the skills and education necessary to do the job in a more organized and effective way. We don't need good old boys with varying levels of trigger discipline going full Leroy Jenkins on every fucking conflict. Mm -hmm. That's not what we need. Now, for remote areas that aren't easily and instantly served by a military presence, I say do what you need to do to defend your space. But many of the threats that existed when those words were written involved attacks from indigenous people who, for some reason, didn't like that white Europeans were trying to take over. Those aren't a concern today. So what's the excuse now? Are the threats that concern them real or imagined? Because militias still exist. Oh, yeah. What evidence can you show me that proves that a militia is still even necessary in most cases? Now, I don't know what goes on in every county, in every state across the Fruited Plain. Maybe there's justification for this in certain instances, but I cannot think of one off the top of my head. So if anyone wants to educate me to that, 
I mean, I, I know that there are conservative atheists out there too who may understand this a little bit better than I do, but I don't understand why our established national military isn't good enough here. Right. It doesn't make any sense to me in 2021. It just doesn't. Because without any real justification, I don't see how anyone can say that carrying a gun for the express purpose of carrying a gun is an okay thing to do. And I cannot see why private citizens need to carry guns to stay safe. Folks, I've made it 49 years so far living in the same world in the same country as they do. I've had plenty of interpersonal conflicts. I felt vulnerable and I felt threatened. I've been in situations where I didn't feel safe and yet I've survived them all without ever packing heat. Go figure. Mm. Now, this may surprise some of the people that are listening, may surprise some atheists out there, but I have no issues with having a gun for home protection. If you live in an area where crime stats say it's a good idea, and even if it just makes you feel a little bit more secure, that when you're at your most vulnerable and when you're sleeping at night and someone comes into your house, you have some means of defending yourself, that's all fine. As far as I'm concerned, do what helps you sleep a little bit better at night. I still wouldn't feel compelled to carry one everywhere I go. Right. I've never felt that level of quote-unquote threatened where I felt like I needed to have a gun on me at all times. Mm-hmm. That's what the right to keep and bear arms is about. Defending your land or property or whatever from acts of aggression, not to fuel this, there's no defense like a good offense mentality that motivates people to carry guns everywhere. When you walk out your door, looking at the things you do as part of everyday life being somehow threatening, it affects your perception of what threatening actually is. It's textbook paranoia, and I don't think that paranoia and live ammo go well together. You know, I could say so much more on Mm -hmm. the subject of carrying guns and i know people who do and for whatever reason they always love to tell you that they're carrying my last employer one of our higher ups Mm -hmm. was from new hampshire and it's much much easier to get a carry permit up there yeah he liked at certain strategic times to let us know that he carried a gun right what the implications of that were i still don't know i don't understand why he felt that that was information that we needed (laughs) but you know he was very proud about the fact that he never leaves home without a gun and i just i don't get it we don't live in a high crime area this isn't exactly the hood but it's also not the best part of massachusetts either right And I still don't worry about bringing my trash to the curb at night. I still don't worry about sitting out in my yard with my very unprotected and very unlocked fence. I still don't worry about that stuff. And I've never once had it in my head, boy, I'd sure feel better if I had a gun at my side right now. It's just not a thing that has ever been in my head. And once that notion is in there, it's hard to get it out. That, I think, is where a lot of the danger comes from where you just decide that you need this thing. And it's really just like anything else. Did we need cell phones in 1985? No. Can we live without them now? (laughs) Yeah, no. Okay, so before you started carrying a gun, did you need it for your everyday life? No. But now that you're carrying that weapon, all of a sudden it's essential equipment. You're not fully dressed without it. It's the same thing as cell phones. We got shit done without cell phones. And we dealt with conflicts and we dealt with all of the minor little fears and worries of life without guns. So 
now that you have that thing holstered to your side, what exactly is it that is making it necessary? It's not that the thing is necessary. It's that your brain is telling you that it's necessary. I also know of a lot of people who carry guns who say that they've never even unholstered them in public. So that to me proves the point right there. If you've never needed it, then why the fuck do you need it? Yeah. I could go on for hours about this, but I'm going to step off my soapbox and we're going to move right along into the subject of hate groups. Right. The Southern Poverty Law Center, the organization that identifies and monitors hate groups in America, reported two alarming statistics in the last five years. First, there's been a 55% increase in white nationalist hate groups since 2017. In other words, during the last presidential administration. Mm. Second, there was a 43% increase in anti-LGBT hate groups just in 2019. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. In just one year, the number rose by 43%. Over a group of people that, honestly, what threat are they to you? What's the threat? Just don't bother them. Don't think about things that make you feel uncomfortable. This is their lifestyle. This is who they love. This is how they love them. Why can they not be afforded the same privilege that you are? Right. It makes no sense. Another alarming statistic here is that the same organization counted 784 hate groups in 2014. That figure rose to 954 in 2017 and then 1,020 in 2018. The Alabama-based law center said last year's total surpassed the previous high reported in 2011. And that comes from an article on cbsnews.com that also borrows from another article that I found on the SPLC website. Right. White supremacy. Now, what's the primary focus of a lot of these hate groups? White supremacy has been the primary focus of evangelical hate groups for years with the most glaring historical example being the Ku Klux Klan, which still has a vibrant and far more visible presence in America than it really should. Right. At this point, I don't understand why this is even still a thing here, but current events, recent events, have opened my eyes to a lot. I didn't realize how much of this I was blind to Mm -hmm. until it was allowed out into the open. And it made me realize that this shit's always been here it's always been here to this degree it's just that now there's some asshole in the oval office that's giving these people a voice and it's not all down south it's everywhere oh Oh, hell no every state in the union oh i mean come on just in the northeast alone oh yeah i'm not going to call out individual states but i do know that i've seen my fair share of racism up and down new england oh yeah and i've seen it in places and areas where you would think would be a little bit more liberal, would be a little bit more tolerant, but they're not. No, they're not. It's been an eye-opener. The last four years for me have been a tremendous eye-opener. Oh, definitely. But here's the other problem with that. I'm also white. Yeah. And from the time that I was little, I was conditioned to think of myself as special because I was white. Mm -hmm. And just like Jane Elliott says, if you are Caucasian and graduate high school without being at least somewhat racist, your social studies teachers haven't done their jobs. Yeah, I've grown up believing certain things about me that are false. I've grown up believing certain things about the way the world works that are false. And there's been a big cushion put in my brain right. on the real severity of a lot of this stuff. So 
it took having this miscreant in the White House for me to start really seeing how bad it is. And ladies and gentlemen, it's fucking bad. It's so bad. I don't think that if you are white and living in America right now, you can even begin to imagine how bad it is, even with everything that's been right out in front of you over the last few years. Every act of violence against minorities that you've seen on TV, all of the high-profile stuff is just the tip of the iceberg. These are the things that make the news, okay? It doesn't account for the more subtle things that happen every day in workplaces across America. It doesn't account for the way that people just treat each other walking down the streets. It doesn't account for the things that people say about each other when they're alone in their cars. Right. It's a much, much bigger problem than we've been allowed to see or that we've been allowed to care about. Yeah. And that's a problem. And here's a quote from an article from medium.com. Depending on the source, evangelicals self-identify as 25 to 41% of the population inside of the 70% of Americans who claim Christianity as their religion. White evangelicals, capital W, capital E, comprise about 15.6% of the population. That's a lot of people. Yeah. That is a shockingly large number of people. Roughly 50 million people. Right. is what that accounts for. And a whopping 82% of those who identify as white evangelicals pledged to support Trump's re-election in November. And I'm certain that they voted for him, not oh, that it yeah. did the good that they wanted it to do, mm-hmm. but I'm certain that they did. I plugged the website. I didn't tell you the, uh, the name of the article. This is from an article called The KKK is a Christian Organization by Shannon Brown. And that is, again, at medium.com. Link is in the show notes. Definitely read this article from beginning to end. Now, whether they want to admit it or not, many evangelicals are in fact white supremacists. Some are tolerant of the presence of people of color in their churches and church communities, but they dissuade and sometimes rally against them holding significant positions within their churches, including pastoral or vestral positions. And you can read that if you're, if you're AG, that means that they can't be on the board. Right. This is not an across-the-board generalization since many evangelical white supremacists attend churches led by pastors who don't share their ideals. The attitudes are more prevalent in the pews than the pulpit, but there are plenty of pastors out there who either champion white supremacist ideologies or turn a blind eye to it in their congregations. Evangelical Christianity remains the single most racially segregated religious group in America. There are white AG churches. There are Hispanic AG churches. There are black AG churches. That's not to say that there is no integrating. I also know that there are plenty of churches out there that have a good mix of all of these things. My My home church had a very good, diverse population. It was predominantly white, but then again, so is Christianity. There were plenty of people from the surrounding areas who were people of color. Mm -hmm. And I never saw any heavy racial conflict going on in that environment. I keep saying I never saw this in my own little bubble, which I think is really, really good because I don't know where my thinking would be right now if I did see more of that, if I had more of that thinking planted in my head. And there were a few exceptions to the rule along the way. There were those that had very antiquated views of certain things when it came to race, but I never saw it on the church van. I never saw it at a youth group meeting. I never saw it during a retreat. Everybody just got along. 
And I don't think that anybody was overly concerned at how much melanin there was in anybody else's skin. Right. I think that we all got along pretty well, but that's in outward terms. Again, you never know what's going on inside somebody's head. And I'm not going to try and implicate anybody that I went to church with. All I'm saying is that when you're white and living in America, you grow up with certain thoughts that get built into the equation over time. So just because everybody got along doesn't mean that those attitudes weren't there. It's just that people held their peace in certain situations. And we all managed to get together and worship and fellowship. And it was all good. In that environment, that's the way that it was. But if I just drive through our neighborhood, I can see a bunch of storefront churches that are predominantly and probably 99 or more percent Hispanic. Right. And you got to wonder, is that because they wanted it that way or because they just finally got to the point where they needed to be someplace where they could just feel safe, welcome, and comfortable? Yeah. The questions always kind of linger in my mind. And I've also heard the other side of the equation. Well, you know, racism goes both ways. And yes, I agree with that because I've seen it. I've been part of it in in terms of things that have affected me in the past. So yeah, it does go both ways. But you know what? I honestly don't think that the motivation behind it is the same. I think that a lot of my perceptions of quote unquote reverse racism have everything to do with the way that I've been taught to think about myself. And this still inability that I will admit to having to being able to really see the other guy's perspective in this because I've never been them and I've never had the occasion to go through the things that they've been through or go through or go through on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And I think that that might actually be more of it. I don't think that we have a lot of Hispanic churches in this area because the Puerto Ricans around here are racist. I think that we have a lot of Hispanic churches around here because they just want to worship in peace. Yeah. That, I think, is most of it. So I've tossed this term around quite a bit earlier in the episode. I want to actually explain it now. What is white evangelicalism? It's a real thing. It's not just a moniker for someone who is Caucasian and evangelical. White evangelicalism is an entirely different monster, and it is a monster. Simply put, an evangelical is an adopter of a globally shared religious delusion. A white evangelical weaponizes that delusion and takes it to wild and often dangerous extremes. The former group is largely sedentary, but also very vocal. The latter group is mobile and aggressive as well as vocal. That's the best way that I can describe this. Also, the delusion levels within these groups are amped up to 11 in comparison to what you see in your local church. White evangelicals believe that they see truths that you and I cannot. Mm. And I mean, that right there is, you know, it's, it's loony bin mentality. I don't know what else to say about that. I think that that statement right there, I think it says it all. I think that it says it very succinctly. And to put a little bit more of a cap on that, NewRepublic.com has an article titled, The Capitol Riot Revealed the Darkest Nightmares of White Evangelical America. And I want to share just two short-ish quotes from this article, because I think that they put a cap on the overall message of it very, very well. Quote, while Americans around the country watched an inflamed mob overrun the Capitol on January 6th, the evangelical participants in that mob saw something else, 
a holy war. Insurgents carried signs that read Jesus saves, in God we trust, Jesus 2020, and Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. One man marched through the halls of Congress carrying a Christian flag, another a Bible. They chanted the blood of Jesus covering this place. And that's pretty much what I was talking about in my little tirade a couple of weeks ago. This was, in their mind, a holy war. And there's that delusion that I'm talking about, that hyper-amplified delusion that is signature with white evangelicals. Another quote from the article, for months, various evangelicals have claimed in sermons, and uh, didn't I say this too, Mm. in that little tirade talking about Paula White and Kenneth Copeland and the insanity that was showing up on YouTube, even with local churches and pastors posting videos, just sitting there and praying fervently that the election would be overturned. I was talking about this. For months, various evangelicals have claimed in sermons, on social media, and during protests that malicious forces stole the election, conspired to quash Christian liberties, and aimed to clamp down on their freedom of worship and spread the Christian gospel. They felt sure that the final days of history were at hand and that the Capitol was the site of an apocal battle. As one evangelical from Texas told the New York Times, quote, we are fighting good versus evil, dark versus light. It sounds like the plot of a David A.R. White movie. Yeah. Okay. Seriously. White evangelicals are predominantly white supremacists and end times fanatics, which makes them even more dangerous. When you fuse the deluded position of theirs being the only true religion on the planet, their largely transparent racism, whether it be intended or accidental, and their insufferable adherence to end times hysteria, you get a group of people so addled by the things they believe, they honestly think that they have near superhero powers that shield them from both harm and consequence when they commit acts of violence and hate. After all, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. <laughs> Looks to me like his hapless thugs are the ones scattering now. Mm. And the FBI is dragging them out of their hidey holes one thug at a time. Yeah. These total and complete idiots are so deluded that when they stormed the Capitol, they mugged for the cameras, they took lots of selfies, and then unabashedly posted their confessions on social media, which the FBI is turning around and using to find them, arrest them, and hold them accountable. Yeah. Idiots. According to Insider.com, 169 pro-Trump rioters have been charged so far at the time of this recording. I wonder what that number is going to be when this episode airs on Sunday. Yeah. Or whenever people hear it later on. They have a searchable table on their site that lists every last one of the people who've been charged, and the list gets updated daily. When I looked at this, it was already 24 pages long. So all I can say about that is what I've said about pretty much everything where God is supposed to intervene and God is supposed to do right by his people. Where the fuck was he? If your intent was righteous, if this is what your God wanted, where was he? Yeah. And why is he going to let you go to jail? And if you were there, if by some miracle of circumstance, one of you who was there is listening to this, I can tell you unequivocally, you are going to be held accountable. Yeah. It's that simple. For starters, you probably made it too damn easy to begin with. 
And even if you weren't one of the ones that was mugging for the cameras and posting to social media, that's okay because there are cameras all over the building that you were in. Yeah. And someone's going to recognize you. And just like the FBI director said a couple of days ago, it would be so much better for you if you just turn yourselves in. Oh, definitely. Seriously. If by some miracle of circumstance, someone who was there is listening, just turn yourself in. Mm. You still have a chance at having a life if you do. I don't know about if you don't. Yeah, I don't so know. So there is that. Since we're talking about hate groups and white evangelicals are a very proliferous hate group, there's a lot of them. It's a huge group. There are splinters. There are splinter factions within this whole thing. They are a very large and very dangerous group of radical evangelicals. And at this point, I just kind of want to steer away from the nutters that stormed the Capitol because we've said a lot on this. It's probably going to come up again in future episodes in various contexts. But I want to steer away from that and just give you an idea of what's been going on with these people since like the early 80s. This is when I started becoming cognizant of some of these things. And some of these entries that I'm going to cite in a minute were ones that were definitely familiar to me. One in particular that was very familiar to me from the early 90s. But let's talk just for a few moments about pro-life hysteria. The first thing that I thought of when I started thinking about the whole pro-life movement is that many, if not most, pro-life evangelicals are also in favor of capital punishment, which, as far as I'm concerned, totally goes against the grain of anything that remotely resembles pro-life. Now, I myself am staunchly Mm pro-choice, but I'm also not okay with state-sanctioned murder. Right. These people are, but they don't seem to care if a mother with an ectopic pregnancy dies because if both the mother and the baby die, then that must be God's will. And violence against abortion providers is, to this day, so prevalent among evangelicals, both groups and individuals, that we could probably do a month's worth of episodes on this macabre topic. But instead of that, I've highlighted just a few, because I think just a few is all I can take. Yeah. So again, this is a Wikipedia entry, and I've vetted the ones that I've pulled out of here. I went in there looking specifically for cases that right there in the entry cite evangelical involvement. So going back to August of 1982, three men identifying as the army of God Mm. kidnapped Hector Zavalos, a doctor and clinic owner, and his wife, Rosalie Jean, and held them for eight days. That's child's play. In comparison to what some of these people have done. In 1987, July 27, 1987, eight members of the Bible Missionary Fellowship, a fundamentalist church in Santee, California, attempted to bomb the Alvarado Medical Center abortion clinic. Church member Cheryl Sullinger procured gunpowder, bomb materials, and a disguise for co-conspirator Eric Everett Svelmo, who planted a gasoline bomb. It was placed at the premises, but failed to detonate as the fuse was blown out by the wind. Do I need to make some kind of comment here about the Holy Spirit and a mighty rushing wind? Do I need to say anything about this? I mean, obviously, I don't believe in it, but I just find it ironic that that's a key identifier of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And that's what thwarted their plan was a mighty rush of wind. March 10th, 1993, 
Gynecologist David Gunn of Pensacola, Florida, was fatally shot during a protest. He had been the subject of wanted-style posters distributed by Operation Rescue in the summer of 1992. Michael F. Griffin was found guilty of Gunn's murder and was sentenced to life in prison. This is the one that I said I was most familiar with. I followed this one back in the day. July 29th, 1994, John Britton, a physician, and James Barrett, a clinic escort, were both shot to death outside another facility, the Ladies Center in Pensacola. Paul Jennings Hill was charged with the killings. June Barrett was shot in the same attack, which claimed the lives of James Barrett, her husband, and John Britton. Hill received a death sentence and was executed on September 3rd, 2003. Hill was an American minister and anti-abortion extremist. I can remember hearing about this one. And I can remember hearing all of the details unfold and the way that his church was backing him up. There was nothing apologetic about anything that they had to say. And I mean, with this idiot as a leader, what else can you really expect? Mm. But I can remember this one sending chills up my spine, just seeing the reactions of the people in that church. And even back then, completely mired in the Kool-Aid, I looked at it and said, how on earth could you people call yourselves Christians? Yeah. Because this is not what any loving God would intend for you to do. He would want you to deal with this from the standpoint of reason. He would want you to deal with it from the standpoint of legislation and get laws changed or at least come to reasonable compromises that will help you get a step further in what you want to do. And in this instance, I'm not sure that's such a great idea because I personally like abortion laws the way that they are. Mm -hmm. I think that they protect women as much as they do and to to a greater extent than they do just making it easy to use abortion as birth control. There are so many reasons why a pregnancy would need to be terminated that I'm not about to stand in judgment over anyone who decides to do it for any reason. I'm, very much in the camp of adoption, not abortion, but that's me. And I don't know what these people's circumstances are. I don't know what their reasoning is for doing things that they do. I do know that it's none of my business. And that unfortunately is the bottom line because there are things that I would like to see addressed a little bit differently. But at the same time, I feel like changing those things would change the laws too radically to keep women protected. So, It's kind of a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. You need the things about this that you don't really like to be able to have the things that are necessary. So that's really, as far as I'm concerned, the bottom line. I would never encourage someone to get an abortion as a form of birth control, but I'm also not going to judge you for it. Right. Because whatever the circumstances were, you made that decision based on what you felt was right for you at that time. And the only thing that really, really concerns me about it. And this may sound terrible because you can say, well, it involved another human life. Well, it didn't involve a viable human life. This thing that was growing inside this woman never saw the light of day. It never had the chance to have a thought or an emotion or anything like that. But the mother does have thoughts and emotions. And the thing that does concern me a little bit about abortion as birth control is the after effects that it can have. And the psychological effects they can have. Mm. There's stuff there that lingers after that to me is the most damaging part of this is what it can do to the person who decides to have the abortion. So I think that education is very important. I think that taking the time to really assess what all the options are 
and decide what's right for you is very, very important. But if the most viable solution turns out to be having that abortion, I am not going to sit here in judgment. Right. The concern that I have is that the only reason a lot of these women have these thoughts of regret or, oh dear, what if, is because people put that on them. Yeah, there is that. Christians especially will put that on them and say, hey, you have to repent of this because you did something wrong. And the very slanted mandatory education yeah, that that's they get. Boring. In most circumstances, they're forced to have a sonogram. Yeah. And see what's going on inside them. And it's like, yeah, that's not necessary. It's not good or necessary. And the other problem I have is that they also want to restrict birth control access. And it's like, you can't just say, oh, well, you also can't have birth control. Well, no, yes, you can. You need to. And if you have more birth control, you have less abortions. That well, that's just true. goes without that's saying. That's true. There was a time, I think it was in the but 90s. You can't, you can't circumvent God's plan now, can you? Yeah, but see, that doesn't matter. <laughs> well, it's it doesn't just, matter to us. It's, well, it shouldn't matter to them either, because if God wants that girl to get pregnant, then she's gonna, regardless of what she's doing. Well, sure, plenty of people who've been using birth control, yeah. who, who used birth control, right. have managed to get pregnant anyway. Yeah. So, you know, you could use that as the argument, and I'm sure it has been used. Oh, sure. But it's not even about that. It's about the whole aspect of control. It's Yes, it, exactly. And... You know, there was a time, I think, in the 90s where abortions were actually down because there was better access to birth control. And birth control education. And birth control education, sex ed, and all that stuff. But then they started doing away with that, and the abortion rate went up again. Yep. So, you know, how do you want this this to pan out? I mean, First, you want to control whether or not someone gets pregnant in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then you want to control what happens when they do. Right. I mean, where does it end? When do you just reach a point where you understand it's none of your fucking business and butt out? Right. You know? That's where my mind is when I hear stories, especially from people that I know. This is none of your business. Butt the fuck out. I've dealt with this. Barely recently, within the last couple of years, with someone that is very close to me. And, you know, she told me what was going on. She told me what she was going to do. And even though I, to a greater or lesser extent, disagreed with the method, I also understood that this person was in no real position to be a good parent, provide for a child, nurture that child. And also, with all due respect, with the line of work that she's in, it would have been a detriment to her continuing to make her living if she had carried that baby to term. Right. Even if she decided to give it away. So you see, there's all kinds of extraneous factors. There are so many things to consider. How do you stand there and point a finger at somebody and say, well, you're making the wrong decision. Well, you know what? Take that necessary mile walk in their shoes before you start even asking those questions. That's the way I look at it. Now, there are many, many, many other examples of abortion clinic violence. And some have been hit multiple times. Southern states in particular, and particularly Florida. Right. Florida is one of the hardest hit states when it comes to abortion clinic violence. Mm. 
while the case descriptions don't always cite faith-based attacks, and this I was looking, I was looking as we went through, as I went through this list of documented abortion clinic attacks, I went looking for specific mentions of anything evangelical. And even when you read some of the FBI reports, they don't get into anything having to do with religion. But here's the thing. In my mind, they don't necessarily have to. Well, they have to because proof is a necessary thing. Disclosure of information is a necessary thing. All of these things are necessary. But this is just my observation here. The case descriptions don't always cite faith-based attacks. But the details and reasons given are so similar that it leads one to believe that a very large number of these attacks were fueled by white evangelical pro-life hysteria and propaganda because so many of the details are the same, so many of the reasons are the same, so many of the things that these people say are the same. I'll refrain from speculating on specific cases only because it would have taken me forever to go through and research every one of these and say, this was a case of white evangelical hate, and this wasn't. But there is very strong evidence, in my opinion, that links an absolutely insane number of these attacks to white evangelical pro-life ideologies, particularly those that are perpetuated by Operation Rescue. It's also interesting to note that some commentators make some very close comparisons between the carrying out of violent abortion protests and the way the siege on our nation's capital was carried out. Mm. This one, this article right here, How Anti-Abortion Terrorism Fueled the MAGA Attack on the Capitol by Lauren Rankin. This is from, at least it was printed on a website called refinery29.com. And I'm going to read two quotes. Operation Rescue was able to shut down clinics across the country and terrorize abortion patients unchecked by the federal government for nearly a decade. That sense of complacency among lawmakers and apathy on the part of some law enforcement officials helped fuel the dramatic rise in anti-abortion extremism. By 1993, just two decades after Roe v. Wade was decided, anti-abortion extremists had escalated from picketing to stalking and blockading to bombing and assassination. And in another place, it says when law enforcement refuses to take anti-abortion harassment and violence seriously, it signals their tolerance of that behavior. But it's not just law enforcement. Our cultural complacency around anti-abortion terrorism has helped normalize what should be unthinkable. In this article, she goes on to relate how we've dealt with abortion-based violence to what happened in the Capitol and why it was allowed to happen. And I think that it's an article that everybody who's listening right now should also read. Some of the key players in anti-abortion terrorism are also listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center, many with ties to and alliances with Operation Rescue. The Reverend Matthew Truella, who founded the Militant Missionaries to the Preborn, was one of the first anti-abortion leaders to publicly call for militias. At a 1994 Wisconsin convention of the U.S. Taxpayers Party, the USTP, which mixes anti-abortion and anti-government patriot militants, he called on churches to form armed militias also. After telling congregants to do, quote, the most loving thing, unquote, by buying their children an SKS rifle and 500 rounds of ammunition, he said he was teaching his own 16-month-old the location of his trigger finger. Larry Pratt, 
executive director of Gun Owners of America, helped Operation Rescue at its time when it was facing a $50,000 fine. Pratt's Committee to Protect the Family Foundation raised nearly $150,000 to pay Operation Rescue's bills without that organization ever holding the money. Pratt only halted his fundraising when a judge ruled that the foundation could be held liable for Operation Rescue's fines. Again, there are so many examples where the word evangelical isn't used, but with so many of the perpetrators also holding anti-LGBT and racist views and being involved in hate crimes against these groups, their stories all but call them out as white evangelical extremists. Mm-hmm. I won't call them out personally without proof, right. but just look at the evidence. It's there. Also from the same page, the militant anti-abortion movement is driven by three different but overlapping theologies that motivate violence. Christian Reconstructionism, Christian Identity, and Apocalyptic Catholicism. To understand this movement's increased militancy and its goal of instituting a theocracy, a goal that by definition means ending democracy, it is necessary to examine these three ideological strands. Now, I'm going to give brief definitions of these things, and I'm going to refer you to the source for a much more in-depth analysis of all of these. But let's just give a brief definition of what all three of these are. Reconstructionism proposes contemporary use of the laws of Old Testament Israel or, quote, biblical law as the basis for, quote, reconstructing society under an explicitly theocratic government. Fuck off with that. (laughs) The Christian identity movement is best known for tenets holding that Jews are the literal descendants of Satan and blacks are soulless subhumans. But it also attacks abortion, which in most cases is seen as a capital crime. Then there's Catholic apocalypticism. I can't believe I got that out in one try. (laughs) This is an apocalyptic version of Catholicism, blending Catholic and Protestant versions of justification for anti-abortion violence. The article that I mentioned previously, this is from an article from the SPLC, their own website. But like I said earlier, there is, in fact, a difference between these people and your average pew sitter. But really, that difference is only in what they actually do with the beliefs that they hold. Most evangelicals have major points of agreement with white evangelical terrorists, even if they aren't the ones building the bombs. Many decry the methods, but agree with the philosophies behind them. And With the level of impressionability among evangelicals, thanks to that awesome thing called childlike faith, it is far too easy to convince them that causes like Operation Rescue are actually righteous. I have never identified as white evangelical. I've never had the notion to bomb a clinic. I did, however, spend a lot of Sunday afternoons picketing Phoenixville Hospital in Pennsylvania as part of Operation Rescue. Mm. I was in this organization. See what I mean? I didn't build the bombs, but I showed my support knowing full well that there were crazy people out there doing this stuff in the name of the same organization. Yes, for a brief period in his late teens, early 20s, the spider was a member of a hate group. Just one more of those you have to let it go examples because Mm -hmm. at the time, I didn't look at it that way. I didn't see them as a hate group. I thought I was saving babies. Mm. That was the bottom line for me. We can also talk about other domestic terror groups that have evangelical ties, like the Westboro Baptist Church and other hate groups that wear the moniker of evangelical. But some of these groups are so extreme that even other white evangelical groups decry their actions. 
I mean, some of the most radical white evangelicals out there will decry some of the methods of the Westboro Baptist Church. Oh, yeah. It's crazy, but it's true. I think it's noteworthy, however, that these people choose to brand themselves under the cover of Christianity. What that tells me is that even if a hate group isn't overtly or legitimately Christian, they see enough points of identity with evangelical ideology to adopt that identity. And when one considers how many racist, anti-LGBT, and anti-abortion hate groups do have their ties to evangelicalism, what's the point? You could say that the point is that you have a legitimate bone to pick with one and not the other on religious grounds, which I agree to to an extent. But look at their actions and judge those actions based on their true motivations. You don't have to be religious to be a racist or a homophobe. You don't have to be religious to like the idea of violence. You don't have to wear the mark of Christian or evangelical for any of these things, but many do. Why? Because it's safe cover. The expectation of congruity with evangelical philosophies and beliefs is high enough that at that point, does it really matter what they believe? They've identified their influencers. That's good enough for me. As far as I'm concerned, even if they aren't specifically Christian groups, they represent a lot of what is wrong with evangelical Christianity and white evangelicalism. Again, it's good enough for me. Christian violence has nothing to do with Jesus, at least not directly, and at least not as a spiritual mandate. Jesus never told anyone to wage war, but, but he did do kind of a stellar job of setting the pieces up on the chessboard and setting the machine in motion. Mm. Even with his messages of pacifism, turning the other cheek and whatnot, there was an underlying notion of hating your brother, your parents, and others around you as a prerequisite for following him. And while many theologians say that these words aren't meant to be taken literally, I say, with all due respect, if this is the inerrant authoritative word of God, God could do better. He could say it another way. Speak in terms that your followers can understand. What did Jesus mean by all of that? Without getting inside the writer's head, I can't say for certain, even after a course of responsible exegesis, there are so many conflicting views, I can only take the words on their face, which is what most evangelicals are going to do with them anyway. Christian violence is as old as the religion itself. Peter cut off a soldier's ear in an effort to keep Jesus from getting arrested. It started there. It continued with religious wars that took literally millions of lives between the Crusades and every splinter inquisition that cropped up around Christian doctrine. And it continues today in a nearly 50-year stretch of abortion clinic attacks, violent protests by white evangelical hate groups, and the advent of a presidential administration that spent four years fanning the flames of insurrection, speaking the language of the rabble, and motivating them to commit acts of insurrection, not just for their maniacal leader, but in equal measure for the God whom they decided he represented. I'm sad to say that I don't see this pattern breaking anytime soon, and that means that we as rational, free-thinking people who understand the damage that this religion has done and continues to do in society need to stay alert, stay active, and most importantly, stay vocal. Don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to explain to the average pew-sitter what's wrong with this picture. It can come in the form of an even-tempered dialogue. That's important. Even-tempered dialogue bringing sound evidence and examples to the table in social media discussions, 
or just sharing a link to a podcast that drives the point home. And that is not a shameless plug. There are all kinds of resources out there. There's ours, but there's a lot more. Anything that's relevant, anything that says it a little bit better than you think you can, just share it out and let people hear that you're not the only one that has this opinion. That's very important. We may not be able to single-handedly eliminate this insanity from our culture, but we can and should expose it. Understanding where it comes from and how far back the problem stretches is vital. Have enough empathy for the people involved to understand that this thinking didn't just drop into their heads on its own, but do hold them accountable for what they choose to do as individuals, especially when what they do threatens other people's liberty or attempts to unravel the political structure of an entire nation as the result of propagandist hysteria. Hold them accountable when they kill employees at abortion clinics and point out the insanely hypocritical notion of killing someone because you're pro-life. Hold them accountable when they spew hate-filled rhetoric and try to hide behind their religion as justification for it. Hold them accountable for their racist views and actions. Hold them accountable when they shoot up gay nightclubs or spew hate-fueled rhetoric about the LGBT community and hide behind ignorant Bronze Age thought as their justification for it. We've learned a few things since those words were written, people. Let's start doing something with what we know. Let's keep our eyes open. Let's keep our voices loud. And let's not let these people get comfortable with the way they think and act. Show them that their way of doing things is wrong and that there is no deity out there leading them into battle. I don't expect to see much change in my lifetime, but change can and must start now. The more we stay alert, the more we speak up, the more we hold these people accountable, the closer society on a whole will come to silencing this gospel of hate. And when that happens, maybe society itself can start healing. Maybe it will start taking its own collective steps away from toxic religious thought and a few giant leaps toward getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.